Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Eugene Yang. This week, we're excited to sit down with Lieutenant General Robert P. Ashley Jr. Lieutenant General Robert P. Ashley Jr. is the 21st Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He's an Army Military Intelligence Officer and has held key positions as Army Deputy Chief of Staff G2, Director of Intelligence for United States Army Joint Special Operations Command, and as the Director of Intelligence for United States Central Command. He's commanded at the company, battalion, squadron, and brigade levels, and has deployed in support of Operation Joint Forge, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation Enduring Freedom. Lieutenant General Ashley has a bachelor's degree from Appalachian State University and master's degrees from both the National Intelligence University and the United States Army War College. First and foremost, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yep. Thanks very much for the invite. I uh, always look for an opportunity to talk to people about reading. Yes, sir. First question for you, what are you currently reading these days? Actually, reading and listening. So a couple of things. Uh, over the weekend, I finished a book called The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, which was a bit of a heavy lift. It was about 640 pages, and it's China and U.S.'s relationship from 1776 to present. That present is about four years ago. Uh, John Comfort wrote the book. It was written in 2016. And if you want to get a sense of the context of what's going on now, it is fascinating. It goes back to when we sent missionaries over there in 1776 through 2016. So if you want to understand the context of what's happening now, you really need to see how the relationships evolve. So I just finished that. And I'm in the middle of Rise and Kill First, which is a book about target assassinations by the Israeli government. It's a lot about Mossad. Just getting into that one, about 100 pages into it, that's about a 600-pager. And I'm about halfway through a shorter book by a guy named Joseph Nye, Do Morals Matter? And it's about uh, foreign policy from FDR to Trump. And then I started listening, because I'm going to be in the car for a few hours on Wednesday, started listening to algorithms for daily use. And so while I look at you know geostrategic politics, some of the history of some of the countries and nations, I also like to occasionally delve into something a little more contemporary, just shoring up my algorithm skills and the math, <laughs> the math prowess that I do not have. Any big takeaways? I'm really curious about your thoughts on the China piece and anything that kind of fundamentally changed your, your point of view, sir? Um, I think what really fundamentally changed my point of view is that it seems with every generation, we think we're going to turn the party into hmm. a democratic party, and that being the, the Chinese Communist Party. The other part of it is much like with North Korea, there's a great book called The Two Koreas, which was given to me my counterpart in the uh, Republican of Korean military. Lots of these things are cyclic, and I, I can't give you the exact quote, but there's a portion of this in the 50s where you look at the exact nature of the language between the Eisenhower administration and Chairman Mao. And if you took out who said what, and you just brought the quotes in, and as it got into sanctions and relationships and pressure points, if I just lifted those quotes out, you would think that's coming right out of the Wall Street Journal or it's coming from policy. And you see a lot of the same things with regards to relationship with Korea. It works in cycles. And so that's why I think it's so important to study this and to get an appreciation, one, from a cultural standpoint. But the other part is, in some cases, as you're thinking about, and you know, I'm not in the policy business, but we help inform it, shame on us if we don't have an appreciation for kind of that history. Because as I look at some of these nations, especially some of the Asian nations, uh, they, they don't forget that. They understand that history. They study it. They know what that relationship was 100 years ago. 
uh, 150 years ago or 70 years ago in the 50s. And I'm not sure we do as well. I mean, we have lots of subject matter experts, but it's just something I think we're, where we need to up our game. Absolutely. What other books have had big impacts in your professional development over your career as a military officer? More times than not, it's books that are related to uh, to leadership and really looking for those examples. You know, Secretary Mattis, and I'm not quoting exactly, but he said something to the effect of, why would you want to learn all those lessons on your own when they've been captured through the pages of history, where you can get a sense of what challenges leaders have faced, whether it's a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or 10 years ago. And in many cases, you're, you get an understanding, the problems aren't exactly the same. And so you have to also understand that you got to realize the context of that. But I think those are incredibly helpful. And one of the things that I, I'd like to take is a couple of ones that are really key. And one of my favorites is actually, it's only about 120 pages and it's called Gray Eminence. And it's written about a two-star general that, unless you're a bit of a historian, you won't know who he is but you know his impact. And the, the story really is one about investing and coaching, teaching and mentoring and identifying talent. And I use a picture of him in a lot of briefings I give to folks. And what I do is I just bring up his picture and I tell a story about the impact that he had on three individuals. Mm -hmm. I said, if this guy were to fill out his, you know, what was your legacy? What was your impact? I would say, well, here's his legacy. He's responsible for probably one of the premier warfighters in World War II, a chief of staff of the Army, a Supreme Allied Commander, a Secretary of Defense, a Secretary of State, and then I bring up pictures of them when they were in school. And the pictures are Patton, Eisenhower, and Marshall. And still, everybody knows them, knows their story, but what I tell them is, inside that book, The Gray Eminence, you learn how he identified their talent early on, and what he did to help shape their careers. For Eisenhower, is probably the most impactful because had it not been for some of the things that this guy did, Eisenhower may have very well retired from military as a major. And, and then I kind of tell him at the very end, the guy's name is Fox Connor. And his nickname that Eisenhower Marshall gave him was called the Gray Eminence. And the story is absolutely fascinating. What he did to help them along. And right before the D-Day invasion, uh, Marshall and Eisenhower literally sent, and he had retired. He retired between World War I and World War II as a two-star. Uh, they sent a set of the drawings over to his house and said, if you'd be so kind to review these wow. and, and give us your thoughts. And he did and gave them, you know, his thoughts. And so, but it's one of those things where it goes back to the old adage, you know, plant a tree under whose shade you will never enjoy. In other words, you're not putting the tree in the ground so that you can enjoy the shade. You're planting the tree so that others may. In this case, what he did is he planted in those three individuals so that others may, you know, learn and benefit from their leadership. And that wasn't about him. It's a, it's just a great book. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I've never heard that story. So I'm also guilty of that. So what did he do to identify all those names that we know? How did he identify that they were going to go on and, and do great things? He saw them as, as junior officers and when they were very young in their careers, and he had an opportunity to kind of help pull them into positions where they would get exposure, where they would learn, uh, where he could help accelerate it. The thing with uh, meeting Patton was he and his wife were on a, I think they were on a train headed out to Kansas. And on the other side of the car they're sitting in is this, this incredibly strapped, young looking second lieutenant. 
Right. And I think at the time, uh, Connor is probably a lieutenant colonel or colonel. And his wife goes, that's a sharp looking young man. Connor goes, I think I'll go introduce myself. It happened to be George Patton. And then at one point, he's getting ready to go down and take command in Panama. And so he had fostered the relationship with Patton. And he said, hey, look, I'm getting ready to go down to Panama, take command. I really, I really need a good XO. I need a good aide to go with me. And Patton goes, I got the perfect guy, a good friend of mine, uh, Major David Eisenhower. He goes, okay, well, let's all get together for dinner. And so Eisenhower, young Major Eisenhower, gets an invite over. Um, Marshall, he saw Marshall because he worked for him on the uh, expeditionary forces in World War One, and he helped elevate Marshall to work on Persian staff. And so in many ways, he saw the talent. He just ended up meeting him in the course of you know their jobs early on, but he was able to go, well, that's a really sharp guy. Um, I'm going to make sure that we get him in front of other senior leaders so that we can cultivate that talent and make sure that we can move it along. Awesome. Well, sir, in the vein of finding our time to do this professional development and reading about leadership and history, what are some strategies for finding that balance in terms of time to read, as well as doing our day jobs, you know, being present in relationships at home or in, in community? So do you have any good advice for junior officers and mid-career officers that are juggling plates, so to speak? So for the junior officers, you're, you're in a different dynamic uh, in the context of reading and your education. A lot of it is through podcasts. And I think that's one of the things where I kind of like need that generation to pull me into the podcast and go, here's some things you should probably start listening to. One of the things that I don't do during the week is really watch TV. So, you know, one of the things, if you want to figure out how to advance your, uh, your reading, turn the TV off. I think that's a good one. But the other part is you got to figure out, you know, you kind of ask the question of a balance. For me, I, I, I like to phrase it as, as how you orchestrate. There's so many things that you are, whether you're a dad, a coach, a teacher, um, you know, a military officer, all those things. So how do you orchestrate all of that? Because it's not just work and home. And for me, a good example, you know, how do you make time to do that? When I was at Command and General Staff College, schedule was pretty good. You know, I'd just come off uh, a couple of pretty tough assignments where I was, you know, long hours. And you're in class during the day, but you got a little bit of time up until about 20 hundred and the kids were little. Uh, so I did homework or we did soccer and we did coaching, went to games, all that stuff. And my wife was usually pretty early to bed around, you know, nine o'clock at night. Kids went to bed around eight or eight thirty. And so nine o'clock, that was my time. That was my time to read, to study, to make that investment, not to turn on the TV and watch the, the latest, you know, version of whatever whatever TV shows on. And so I just I tried to make the most of the time that I had during the day. And when the kids were up and about, it was time with the kids, but because they go to bed early and then in the evening as everybody kind of retired and I was a bit of a night owl, the next couple hours or an hour, hour and a half was my nose in a book, my nose studying. And occasionally it would be getting up an hour before I really had to be anywhere in the morning right? and just to spend a little bit of time uh, to read or to catch up. But, you know, now you know, my, my sons are 32 and 31. They're out, of, they're out of the house. So I have a little more time that I can dedicate to do that balance you know, orchestrated with everything that is my day job. And I find that it adds so much to what I do now. And it's one of those situations where I was not really that bigger reader until I was a major. And then I was a little bit more aggressive, but the last 10 years that I've been a flag officer, exposed me to just the level of 
discipline and how voracious senior leaders are at reading. And if you really want to keep pace, you better start doing it yourself. So I probably, I've read more in the last 10 years than I did the 20 before that. Oh, wow. In terms of the number of, you know, books. And usually I'm between two and three. And then, you know, Barb's gives me that look of really, you want me to order another one? You haven't finished the last one that I read. And I kind of moved away, you know, as we're getting ready to retire a couple of years ago, I was thinking about this, moved away from the Kindle a little bit because I used to make fun of my aide when I was at Google because he would have like two huge books in his book pack and I would pull out this little teeny wafer thin Kindle and go, Mitch, why are you <laughs> those books around? And he goes, I just like to fill the books. And, you know, I got kind of got back into, I like to fill the books. I underline them. I write notes on them. I go back and pull quotes out of them. Now I could do all that on the Kindle. I know that. But the other part was I had this image of my office in the forever home when I retire with bookshelves on one entire wall. And you walk in and you look and the only thing that's there is sitting in the middle is a Kindle. <laughs> um, I thought that was, that would probably not be very impressive. Uh, and so that house will be done in the middle of September. Awesome. The office will have one wall full of bookshelves. And I have run out of room in this house on the bookshelves that I have. Uh, so I've been throwing them in the, the bottom of one of the cabinets. And I look forward to putting them on the bookshelves. And then one of my goals in life is to fill the shelves up before I pass. So we'll see how that one goes. And I will have more time to read. But it's one of those things where, you know, there's another great, here you get another semi-paraphrasing from Secretary Mattis, where he said, when somebody says, hey, I don't have time to read. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of his, his pushback to that statement is how can you not make time to read in a business where the results of you're not being as well-versed in a topic or a subject of war fighting is so consequential for young men and women. In other words, how can you not study your profession when in fact you will make life and death decisions? And he kind of closes it out saying it hasn't given me all the answers has illuminated what is often a dark path, which to say through the 7,000 volumes he's probably read, he sees situations and it becomes almost like a muscle memory where he's on a battlefield and goes, I recognize this. The same is on leadership. As you go through, you see problems, you see way people have solved things. It's not exactly the same, but it, it can help illuminate what is often a dark path and give you insights to how to solve problems. And so why not you know, learn in, in that way, because you're going to make, you're going to get the hard knocks anyway, that you're going to learn from your mistakes in life. And those are the ones that are going to, that you're going to remember the most, right. but there's a great opportunity to pull that out of the pages of history. Awesome. Thanks for that advice. That's really good. In terms of when you started reading a lot more you know, as a major, did you focus more on reading deeply about one topic or did you go broad and has that changed over the years? And what would you recommend in terms of folks trying to broaden and build that deep intuition from the experiences of others? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a right answer to that question because we face that in what, what I do with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Do you want someone that has a broad understanding of a number of things or do you want somebody that is just has incredible depth? So, you know, so in many ways, it is a little bit of both and it depends on the context of the job that you have. And there's a good book called Range. And uh, I can't remember, his last name is Epstein. I can't remember his first name, but it really, it, it is advocacy for the generalist, right? So it gives you a lot of case studies and how building a knowledge base across a number of topics 
it can be very powerful. Now, depending on the situation that you have, um, you're going to want to have on your team, you know, those people that go deep. So if I'm getting ready to look at China policy, I want some of the, isn't just broad, but you got to figure out how do you put your team together? So you're going to have those people that are, are broad in some context that have depth and it's, it's, it's how do you get the right people together uh, that allow you to really kind of make, make progress in what you're doing. Um, it's like the old joke between, you know, when everybody's talking about, we've got to make more STEM, we've got to invest in STEM, right, we've right. Got more STEM people, we need more mathematicians, we've got to have data scientists. So here's a little bit of the insider baseball. It was a liberal arts person that thought up the internet, but it was a STEM grad that had figured out how to build it. So it, it's that complement, right? Of putting those kinds of skills together. So again, it gets to the context of your job and what you do. I would always advocate that you need to have a, a degree of broadness, even on a topic that you're very, very deep in. It's, you know, the old joke, no one pays to see the one ball juggler. So you got to be conversant in a number of things. And, th and that book range is very helpful. And as you think about, at least I, when I think about what I do and how we build that team, it really does take diversity and background. You know, it's something that's very contemporary today. You know, when you talk about depth and there's a cultural aspect, there's a, there's a demographic piece of that. There's a gender piece of that. When you think about understanding and depth and you build your team for diversity and inclusion, they're going to be people from different parts of the country, from different nations, from different ethnic backgrounds, and they're going to look at problems differently. And that diversity, that inclusion, if you build that, you're going to get some insights that you would have never thought about before. Benjamin Franklin, I think it was, you know, if we're all thinking alike, none of us are thinking. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, I think it's a very contemporary topic for how we build teams today. Shifting gears a little bit towards current events, sir, as you see our nation move towards focusing on great power competition, what do you think is going to be DOD's primary cognitive challenge for adapting the force and preparing for you know, a different type of competition, maybe different technical challenges, cultural differences, and, and other things going on in international relations? Yeah. So, you know, the Department of Defense is a pretty big organization, and it's kind of like turning an aircraft carrier. Uh, in terms of shifting focus and, and changing and acquisition and things like that. And we're working hard to try to be more agile. But the speed of human action, interaction, the speed of technology, the speed in which things are evolving, our models are not necessarily conducive to keeping pace. And so there lies a challenge and people are working hard to try to do that. The secretary is working hard to try to do that. But I think therein lies one of the one of the big challenges for us. And the other is just the sheer volume of information. And part of that sheer volume of information, when you think about artificial intelligence, machine learning, those kinds of tools, is our ability to develop those tools to deal with all the information that we're facing with right now so that we can add to our cognitive ability, add to our ability to aggregate and make sense out of large volumes of information. In some cases, large volumes that humanly, you might not be able to put all the dots together, but in my business, there may be something that's happening right. from an indications and warning standpoint. And because the signals are so faint and disparate that it may require some degree of artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to help see those patterns that you may not be able to see with a human eye. And then, you know, the other part is just the increasing proliferation of technology that will go out. And in many cases, you know, some of the things, whether it be cyber, 
artificial intelligence, computers, things along those lines, that it doesn't take a nation state to be able to have that kind of technology. And for every great opportunity lies the potential of a nefarious act. You know, it's weapons of mass destruction, it's proliferation of technology. And in many cases, some of the things along cyber being incredibly destructive on a global scale, nearly instantaneous that we've got to work hard to defend against, you know, for every defensive piece of software that's written, someone's figuring out a way to, you know, working to figure out a way to get around it. So when you look at things that potentially put industrial control systems, infrastructure, water, power grids, all of that stuff, you know, could hold them at risk. There's a lot of work to be done there, you know, as we, as we look at the future and, and how we, how we mitigate, manage, and uh, ensure we protect the nation. Right, sir. In terms of combining, say, some of the specific technical experts with, you know, generalists who are helping make decisions, how do we improve at maybe asking the right questions or doing the right applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us sort through these big piles of data that we now have access to? What do we need to do to improve that process? Yeah, a, a couple of things and gets into the education piece. One is if there is something that is a repeatable process and you don't need to put a person in the loop, right. figure out a way to, whether it's an algorithm or whatever that you have to write, that you can take the person out of that process, which we've done a number of those things. I can't talk on a, on a on class system, but we've done a number of those kinds of things that we've taken the human out of the loop on some of the processes. There's a great book called An Army of None. Now, The Army of None goes through a number of those kinds of things where they talk about, you know, kind of the person in the loop, the person on the loop, and person out of the loop. And, you know, some of that gets into what is it we can trust computers to do? You know, what are those repeatable things? And where is it we need to have human judgment? There's a great example that the book opens with, I think the guy's name is Stanislav Petrov, the man who saved the world. Back in the 80s, after uh, the North Koreans had accidentally shot down a commercial airliner and the, the Russians had put in place a early missile warning system. And in the middle of the night, this lieutenant colonel for the Russians, uh, this new system has been turned on and it's reading, we got missiles inbound. Now his normal protocol is that he's gonna launch the counter-strike. But rather than trusting the system and launching the counter-strike, he's thinking, well, if the Americans are going to do this, why are there only a couple missiles on my screen? This doesn't, you know, he, he's applying judgment. And he ends up calling around, talks to a bunch of his buddies, and they all work it real quickly, and they figure out we got a glitch in the software. Not that's inbound. For all your listeners, Google the man who saved the world, and you will hear the story of Stanislav Petrov. And that's where the book Army of One starts. Fascinating story. So it starts getting into things like artificial intelligence. At what point do you trust it to make judgment calls like that? where you want somebody either in or on the loop, not out of the loop. Uh, from an education standpoint, part of being able to leverage that kind of technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, you want algorithms or scripts that are written in such a way that help you answer questions in the data that you're seeing. Now, if you don't understand Python or you can't write a script or you can't build an app that goes through an API, um, you need somebody to do that for you. In some cases, if you have a baseline knowledge you don't have to be a data scientist, but you have to understand how to ask data science questions. So we're in the process now of building that into the education for the basic analyst, which is, I don't need to make you a data scientist, but you need to have a, of enough of a baseline 
that you can talk to the data scientists about ways that you think you want to try to manipulate the data. You know, and even organizations like uh, NGA have done a great job of having some of their analysts uh, learn to code in Python. And part of that strength is if we build systems in the right way and the API layer is correct, you know, the analyst who understands how to write a script can literally not necessarily always have to go to the data engineer. He can write the script himself. And so you write a script and you, if you built your architecture, um, it kind of uh, continues to grow with you and your needs and it doesn't become a very static thing. You know, when I go to, when I go to Word, you know, the product inside Microsoft, I can only use the functionality that Microsoft built into Word. Now I can't write a script to get it to do something different with, you know, with letters and things like that. So it's those kinds of things that we have to think about that are going to make us more agile in the future. And then how do we really, you know, ultimately what our mission is, how do we get inside the decision loop of our uh, adversaries, competitors, and opponents? Right. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think in terms of a lot of data pushing information across the world? You know, we're seeing a lot of information operations being conducted in and around here, disinformation campaigns and the use of social media are also blowing up in terms of their influence. What, what recommendations do you have in terms of leaning forward into adapting and being good at operating in that kind of space in the information environment? Yeah. So part of what you have to do is build the process in which, how is it you're going to identify things that are fake? You know, what's, what's your process to be able to do that? And I think in one of those cases, what you're going to find is because of the money that's involved on the commercial industry, if somebody does something fake and pick, you know, a major corporation, I think, you know, the, the incentive to solve a lot of those problems are, I think are going to come first from commercial industry. But the other part is information is so ubiquitous that when you put something out, let's say if somebody had a, a false video of someone selling something. In many cases, because there's so much other information around that, that will expose the truth, the shelf life on something that is fake like that is very short. If that shelf life is 24 hours in a combat scenario, that's long enough to be very damaging and impactful. It's in some cases, fake news, so to speak, will have a limited shelf life because there's so much truth around it. And so we got to look at how we harness that, you know, how we solve deep fakes. And again, I think commercial industry will probably be, you know, leading in terms of uh, looking at things along those lines. Well, sir, really appreciate all of the, all the insights and, and things and we've talked about a, a broad range of topics today and really appreciate all of your, your experience and wisdom. Do you have any parting thoughts or any words of encouragement for, for our audience out there, sir? Be a lifelong learner. Who you are as a leader is a work in progress. You're never done. I got good counsel when I was getting ready to become a battalion commander from a one-star that looked at all the all the lieutenant colonels who were getting ready to be battalion commanders. She looked at us and said, who you are as a leader is about a 75% solution right now. You will spend the rest of your life on the last 25%. Never stop learning. And reading is a huge part of that. And so, again, I've, I've made two maddest references. I'll make a last one. So he's probably at the 99 percentile, maybe 99.9 percentile of who he is as a leader. But what he realizes is that he's a work in progress. He's not done. And so if I were to venture what he's probably doing right now on the uh, on the West Coast is his notes, nose is in a book and he's improving who he is as a leader. He's reading 
and he's continuing his education because he knows it is a lifelong progress. And I would just challenge all your listeners, when you think about what you're reading, ask yourself a question, how is that adding to who you are as a leader and how is it adding to how you're able to tackle the challenges in your life and your profession? Awesome. Well, thank you so much, sir. All right. Well, it was good to be with you and thanks for, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week. Thank you.